Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbow, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talked to Paige Cooley, class of 2007, senior research associate and health policy doctoral student at the George Washington University. Paige will tell us how a pivot from chemistry as an undergrad at U of I eventually led her to conducting important research into HIV prevention at George Washington University as a PhD student. Joining us today is Paige Cooley from the class of 2007. Paige, what do you do? Um, So I'm a senior research associate at the George Washington University in the Department of Epidemiology. Ah, epidemiology. Uh, this is something that's been in the news a lot uh, lately. So yeah. um, let's let's maybe let's start off with um, what's what's the current thing that you're researching right now? Um, so I work on a longitudinal project focused on people living with HIV. Um, so they're enrolled at clinic visits, um, and then they're followed through their medical records um, to see outcomes that occur and um, treatments that they receive and things like that. How long is, how long, what's the range of your longitudinal study? So the study was started in uh, 2010, I believe. Obviously, I've only been working on it since August um, of last year, but it's been going for about 10 or 11 years now. Um, And we have, I want to say close to 12,000 people enrolled in the study. Um, so we're getting closer to enrolling a majority of the people who are living with AIDS or HIV in DC. And, and so that's that's the, uh, the the radius of of people that have HIV is you're drawing from like the DC metro area. Yes, yeah, people who are uh, receiving care at clinics in DC. So some of them live in Maryland or Virginia. Um, depending on where they get their care, but it's anyone who gets their care at clinics in DC. How long will the the study go for? That, as long as we're funded by the NIH, I would assume. Um, They just received a lot of new funding from the NIH. I want to say maybe in June of last year. I should know, but I don't know off the top of my head. It was before I started on the study. Um, But the cohort is funded for um, quite a while now. So I don't anticipate it stopping anytime soon. I know that the um, city uses the data that are collected to um, help plan um, initiatives around HIV. So I think the data are really important and I don't anticipate it going away anytime soon. So um, what have been some of the actionable data points that have come up as a result in, uh, of your study that you've seen so far that have uh, either that you, that have maybe helped the lives of the patients? Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I can say that during the pandemic, we've pivoted to um, we've started a couple sub studies during the pandemic. So enrolling patients who are already enrolled in the larger cohort enrolling them into these smaller studies under the umbrella of the cohort, um, looking at um, COVID um, and if people have been infected with COVID and how that impacts their HIV care um, and the outcomes associated with that. Um, And then 
a sub-study that I'm actually the coordinator for that will begin enrolling on very soon is looking at um, patient-reported substance use and mental health outcomes. Um, a lot of times those things co-occur with HIV diagnoses and, you know, sometimes substance use is the reason that HIV was acquired. Um, and most of our data are not patient reported. They're coming right from the medical record. And so this will be getting information from patients that we may not already have access to, um, depending on what is written in their medical record. So um, excited to see what comes of that to potentially see what kind of interventions that can be um, developed around mental health and substance use um, and how those things interact with uh, the HIV diagnosis and um, people staying in care and ultimately becoming virally suppressed. I don't know if you know, but when you have HIV, um, if you take your medication regularly and your viral load becomes undetectable, um, you essentially can't transmit HIV. So the goal is um, for anyone infected with HIV to become virally suppressed so that they can't transmit the virus. That sounds like an inc incredible work. I, I would imagine, though, that it's got to be tricky to the extent that if, if a patient breaks their leg, we put a cast on it and and can fix it. Whereas other types of like a disease, especially one where you're trying to find the intersection of how the um, what is in the medical records versus what their own anecdotal experience was, how do you how do you find a way to maybe reconcile those two realities? Sure, I mean that's always something um, to think about when you're designing research. Um, Often it's much easier to get data from the medical record um, or from already existing records, um, but sometimes the ideal data comes straight from the patient. So um, it just depends on how you want to design your study, um, what you think you'll be able to get funding for, uh, the resources you have is a lot of it, um, finding patients and being able to follow up with patients, like we we get data monthly from the electronic medical records for 15 clinics across DC. And if we were to try to follow up with those patients, even quarterly, um, all like 12,000 people in the study, uh, it would take an incredible amount of resources. So um, having to balance the resources you have with the information that you want is one big thing when designing a study. So I think that that probably has a lot to do with it. You know, it's interesting, you know, the type of research that you're doing obviously draws a lot of data that comes from science, but the remedy of it seems like it must have a lot of, for lack of a better word, like the human touch and maybe bedside manner to be able to build trust with the patients and the people that are involved uh, with this program. Uh, how, how do you, how does this particular study uh, maybe mold your researchers to be able to build the trust uh, that allows for the kind of maximal, maximum buy-in with the, uh, with the uh, patients? Yeah, I think, I think one really important quality of a researcher, especially someone who's doing clinical research and is um, interacting with patients directly, is um, being able to be a good communicator 
um, because I, I worked in emergency medicine research for six years before I moved over to working on the cohort. And I was more directly involved in um, communicating with patients then. Um, right now in the job I do now, I, I don't have any patient interaction. We have research assistants at the clinics that do that for us. But um, being able to very quickly get the patient to a place where they trust you um, and are willing to listen to what you have to say about the study and why you think it's important and why you think that they should join. Because often patients receive no benefits from being in these studies, no direct benefits. Um, and so just kind of trying to give them the idea of like how this can be helpful to society, how it could be helpful to them in the future, um, and making sure that they're able to trust that what you're doing with their data is beneficial and it will be kept confidential. Um, it's, it's important to be able to communicate well. Um, and when in my past job, I was in charge of hiring research assistants who would work in the emergency department. And one thing that I was always um, really focused on was if they were able to communicate with me well, um, even in their interview, just being able to, you know, talk easily and not be super nervous. Obviously, in an interview, you're going to be nervous, but um, people who are able to um, improv very well and, you know, turn a conversation in the direction that they want it to go um, and put a person at ease, um, I think is really important in doing research where you're interacting with patients. And that's such a soft skill where there's a, an intuition that um, you either have or don't have. Was that was that something that, that you were kind of formally trained at all? Or was that just something that you just kind of had or were able to kind of develop an ear to, to develop? Yeah, I don't know if it's something that can be taught. Um, I first started doing research when during my master's program, I was hired as a research assistant actually on a study that um, the principal investigator that I work under now, um, she was, she had a different study then and she hired me as a research assistant part-time. Um, and we did these consent trainings where you would like role play with other research assistants to run through the consent form because, um, for studies, either you get a waiver of consent, um, through approval processes or mostly you're consenting patients. So, patients are telling you, yes, it's okay for you to use my data in this way. And so you have to run through this consent form, talking about the risks and benefits of the study and study procedures, study duration, things like that. Um, and so we role-played these consent forms. And um, I don't know, it it's awkward at first, but you can kind of get a vibe on a person, like when you first walk into their room, um, and, and being able to kind of change the way you're going to talk to someone just based off of how they're presenting themselves to you. Um, I find that like in the emergency department, like there would always be a chair in the room, like sitting down in a chair next to the person instead of like standing and hovering over them in the bed was a good way to kind of make someone comfortable, um, Sometimes people would be really elevated, really upset, um, you know, crying or they're injured. I, we, I did a lot of different kinds of research in the emergency department, like injury research, um, things like that. And um, so waiting for the opportune moment to talk to someone as well 
was really important. Um, often I tell research assistants, like, wait until they get their first dose of pain medication. They don't feel well right now. And so they're automatically going to turn you away. Um, and so just kind of reading out the situation and finding the best time to talk to someone, I think is um, obviously definitely a transferable skill, you know, in your job in general, like when is the best time for me to ask for a raise? When is the best time for me to have this difficult conversation that I don't really want to have with my significant other or, you know, anything like that? Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a learned skill, but I don't know if there's just something innate in people um, that just makes them able to read other people better. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. It's, 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 but it's everything that you said demands a type of um, a, a, like, again, that type of human connection and attention to detail to want to be invested to, because you know what the outcome is, is that you want them to be receptive to the advice that the medical professional is giving. So yeah, that just, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So let's start with, let's, let's rewind a little bit. because so we went right into the, the goodies of what you do at, uh, at George Washington. Um, where did you go after we go? So I went to the university of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, as did many of my classmates. And, um, I started off as a biology major there. I thought that I wanted to go to med school and be a doctor. Um, and I really, really, really did not enjoy my chemistry classes. Um, they really killed it for me. And the biology classes were okay, but I wasn't in love with them. Um, and so I had a hard time my freshman year, um, figuring, learning how to study, um, I was fortunate enough in high school that I didn't have a need to study that often. Um, only in a couple classes did I did I have to do a lot of studying outside of what I was absorbing in class. And so when I got to college, um, I had a very hard time. And my freshman year was very hard um, learning all those skills that I probably should have picked up on um, in high school. Um, and so I decided to change my major at the beginning of my sophomore year, and I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I still liked the health arena. And so I had a friend that I met through one of the extracurriculars I was in, who was a community health major. Um, and she suggested it to me and said that she had been in the same position. Um, she was a couple years older than me. And so she had said she was in the same position, was a biology major, didn't like it. Um, and so I took a couple classes, um, I want to say fall of my sophomore year, and met with the advisor and really enjoyed them. So I switched my major to community health um, and graduated from Illinois with that. Did you, did you, were you able to do any traveling like um, when you were an undergrad? Uh, no, actually, I did more traveling during high school than I did in undergrad. Um, I didn't do study abroad. It was pretty expensive. Um, and at the time, Illinois in state tuition was not too bad. And so the price difference didn't make sense to me. Um, having to find someone to sublet my apartment seemed like a lot of work. And I, I did um, these extracurricular musicals. Um, and I really liked doing those and I didn't want to miss a semester of that. And so I decided 
not to study abroad, though I, I did do a Spanish minor while I was there. So I was taking like language classes, but um, I really did not have the money to travel when I was in college. Just a, a quick question about, you said that you, you had to kind of really kind of learn how to study again or for the first time and really kind of like, what was like the, what was your best like advice or, or technique of like, okay, now I need to kind of rewire my brain, how to approach studying. What was the, what was your best um, uh, tool to be able to, to be more successful with that? Yeah, I think um, where I would get caught up is I would like, you know, start at the beginning and get really hyper-focused into details and, you know, maybe the test would be over the first six chapters of whatever, first six lectures. And I would like make it through two lectures in the time that I had allotted to study because I was too focused on the details and not focused enough on the big picture and being able to figure out what was important. Um, and I think one of the things that really helped was when I switched into my new major, um, a couple of the professors who taught a majority of the classes, the core classes in that major, would provide students before tests with like a study guide outline. Um, and so learning, like seeing what they felt was most important um, and being able to compare that to what I felt was most important really helped me um, kind of moving on, like figure out how to figure out what was most important um, and what I needed to learn how to study. Uh, I think that I think that was most helpful. Also, I, the classes just got a little bit easier because I was more interested in it. Um, and so studying wasn't as much of a chore because I enjoyed what I was learning as opposed to like the chemistry classes where I really, really just did not care. <laughs> yeah, I, that, it, it's amazing how organic chemistry seems to be the real <laughs> dream killer. I think for some people that are yeah. going to the sciences, it, it just, I, I, I've, I, I've, and that's been the way since when I was in college too, where everyone's like, Oh, organic chem, it's so rough. What was the, uh, what was the musical or the play that you were, uh, that you were um, so happy to be part of when you're at U of I for the extracurricular? I did, um, I want to say five musicals while I was there. We did wow. one, one a semester it was this um, organization called Alina Union Board Musicals, um, and it was funded through, I want to say, like, probably the student activities fee or something, but it was like a school-sponsored um, extracurricular thing, and it was um, a lot of people who, you know, did theater and stuff like that in high school but didn't major in it in college. We had, like, occasionally we'd get a theater major who would be in a show, but it was mostly non-majors. Um, and it was really fun. We did, um, I was, I was mostly in the chorus. I got a bigger role my second semester senior year. We did Sue's Cole the Musical. Um, and I played the, there's a like main character who's like an eight-year-old boy. Um, and I got that part. <laughs> I'm very short. Um, so <laughs> I guess it worked, but mostly I was just in the chorus. We did like West Side Story. We did Guys and Dolls. We did Cinderella. Oh, a blast. That was a while ago. No <laughs> blast. All right. So then, so you, you graduated from U of I. Now, um, what then brought you to George Washington to uh, begin your, your master's research? 
Yeah, so um, after I graduated from Illinois, I had an internship at the DuPage County Health Department doing um, environmental health stuff. So I was like doing West Nile virus surveillance. So I would go out and collect mosquito traps and test the dead mosquitoes for West Nile virus. And I was inspecting pools and inspecting restaurants and inspecting um, these uh, like certain kinds of septic tanks. Um, And it was actually really, really fun. And I really loved it. I did that actually summer between my junior and senior year. And then the summer after I finished senior year, they had this like seasonal summer and full-time internship mostly because of the pool inspections that they had to do um and I really really enjoyed that job um but when the internship finished they didn't have any full-time openings available and um there was another intern that I worked with both summers and she suggested to me to look into AmeriCorps programs Uh, Because I had been applying to jobs all over. I couldn't get a job. I don't know if it was, I mean, this was 2011. So I don't know if this was like still the effects of the 2008 financial crash issues. It was just incredibly difficult to get a job. Like I wasn't Mm. even getting interviews. So I don't know if it was me or the economy. Yeah, (laughs) could have been, yeah. I don't know, but so I ended up applying for um, an AmeriCorps program through the Illinois Public Health Association, and I got placed at the City of Evanston Health Department, Um, and so I was there for a year working on a a smoking cessation grant that they had, as well as the Michelle Obama, like, Let's Move initiative. They had a whole, like, getting salad bars into schools. I worked on that program, and then they had this... um, women out walking, uh, like, uh, program to get, you know, older women physically active. Um, and I really like the people that I worked with there. Um, but I didn't so much love the like public interface part of public health. Um, I'm more of an introvert. I, my favorite kinds of jobs are ones where a majority of my time is spent alone, um, doing like my own work. Um, and so interacting with the public that much, I knew that that wasn't going to be for me. Um, and so during my time there, I was applying for jobs at health departments, but a lot of the jobs that were available said that they required a master's degree. Um, And so I decided to get an MPH. I don't know. It's not necessarily that I wanted one. It was more that I felt like I needed to get one based on what the job requirements were or the requirements were to be hired into the jobs that I felt like I wanted. Um, And so I applied to a whole bunch of different um, MPH programs during that year that I was in AmeriCorps, and I got accepted to quite a few of them. Um, But I had my old college roommate was interning with the White House in the year that I was in AmeriCorps. Um, And so I went out to visit her at one point during her internship, um, and I just really loved D.C. Um, And so I decided to go to GW for my master's. So you were, um, you, your master's, you were looking at like the, um, injury research in, in emergency rooms. Um, or, and that, I'm, I'm obviously I'm painting that with a very, very broad, uh, brush, uh, right there. So how did you then 
kind of narrow into a, a thesis uh, when you were doing your research at George Washington for your um, for your master's? So the emergency room job actually came after I finished my master's. Ah. During my master's, um, I had a job. But my first year, I worked part time at the Arlington County Health Department, which is in Virginia, um, doing a like tobacco needs assessment for the county um, because I had worked in tobacco before. Um, so that wasn't really research. Um, but then the summer between my first and second year, a full time MPH is usually a two year program. Um, I interviewed for a couple part time like student research jobs, one of one of which was a research assistant, the HIV research assistant job, and then also to work um, as a like graduate student assistant at the DC health department in their um, division of basically HIV, STDs, TB, um, working on their surveillance system. Um, and I got both of those jobs. Um, and so the two people in charge decided that they would share me. Um, and so I worked on the study for looking at uh, barriers to care for people infected with HIV. I worked on that study um, for a little while, and then I transitioned over to working at the health department. Um, and I worked there until I finished my MPH and um, got my job in emergency medicine. So, um, so, so then going into, if I, if I ask kind of like a, a policy question, in, in your professional view, what is the single best investment of, of, of public allocation of resources that would probably be best for the type of mitigation of the spread of disease, HIV, or uh, whatever disease that you, you happen to be concentrating on, uh, wh what would you, if you had your ability to advocate for a, a single policy, or if I were just to, to narrow it there, what do you think has the most benefit? Prevention, um, yeah. whatever prevention measures there are available. That's why, I mean, that's a public health view, but in terms of HIV, there's biomedical prevention. There's a drug that you can take, PrEP, um, that can prevent uh, the acquisition of HIV for people uh, who are engaging in high-risk behaviors. Um, or, you know, if we're going to talk COVID, like the vaccine, that everyone has access mm. to the vaccine quickly, that there's enough money um, allocated for it. Um, really anything, prevention. Because once you have the disease... Um, depending on what kind of, if it's HIV, you have it for the rest of your life. Um, and now you have to take medication and go to the doctor every three to six months for the rest of your life. Um, and COVID, uh, who knows <laughs> how huh. that's going to turn out? Uh, we don't know. Um, and so obviously, you know, allocating as much money as possible to prevention um, through whatever means there are available, I think is important. So if, so in your, so you're in the PhD program right now, how yes. far along are you? I'm in my second semester of my second year. Um, so I will be done with classes this semester and then hopefully we'll be taking my comps um, this summer um, and then hopefully starting on my dissertation proposal in the fall. What does the process look like for uh, beginning the dissertation uh, process for the um, uh, for the for the for the doctor program? Yeah, so 
Um, I haven't had a meeting yet that outlines the exact process, but from what I can gather from friends who have done it or are in various stages of the dissertation, um, there is a dissertation prep class that you're in for a semester where you work on figuring out what you want to do, though you should come into it already. I mean, you entered the program kind of having an idea of what your dissertation might look like, and it's something that I've been thinking about. Um, and hopefully I have a decent idea, but um, then you have to figure out who's going to be on your committee. So you need to find three three professors, I believe, at the school, one will, who will serve as your chair, and then two other people on your committee who are going to help you along with the dissertation. Um, and then they'll also be the ones that you have to defend your both your proposal and your dissertation to. You also need to find two external readers um, who work at other universities um, who will you will also be defending your dissertation to. And those five people will be the ones who decide whether or not you have done sufficient work to be granted a PhD at the end of the process. Are you leaning towards a particular epidemiological phenomenon so far or what, what's what do you think I mean I, I know we're still a ways out but are you do you have a, a particular um, um, focus kind of gathering steam in your mind yeah so um, because I'm in a policy program I, I have to do something policy related obviously um, and so in 2019 I believe, the Trump administration put out an initiative called Ending the Epidemic um, for HIV, and it had all of these targets about um, basically getting rid of HIV um, in the U.S., um, one of which was um, increasing the number of people who take PrEP, so pre-exposure prophylaxis, that drug that I talked about earlier um, that can prevent HIV if taken as prescribed. Um, and so, um, I am thinking that I might look at, there are, um, national data that the PI that I, I work under for my job has, have access to. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking that I may look at, um, the, like prep uptake, um, before and after that initiative came out. So there's a, a type of analysis you can do. Um, that's like a dif differences and differences analysis, um, where you can look at, um, uh, how things change before and after a policy, um, in treated and untreated groups, basically. Um, it's basically a way to take observational data and, um, do a causal analysis with it. Um, and so I'm hoping to do something like that. I'm also interested in, in social determinants of health and how those play into um, PrEP uptake. And so social determinants of health are things like um, the, the, your employment status, your access to food, um, your access to transportation, your access to childcare, things like that. Um, and they're definitely... I would say kind of a hot topic in, in medical research, uh, public health research right now. Um, and 
I'm interested in, in things like that and how they affect um, prep uptake. That social determinants sound fascinating to be able to explore all the various entanglements of what is the underlying context that would lead to the behavior that you want or don't want for that particular health issue. Wow, that could be interesting as well. Do you find that so, you know, you, you were talking about the program and the research that you're doing at, at George Washington um, that was collecting data from the D.C. metro area. Do When other universities are doing maybe something that's research that's similar to this, are they very um, – is, is – is the research very proprietary? Meaning like, are we like, oh, we're going to share our information with you? Or do people, do they kind of keep it close to the vest uh, with something like that? What's the, what's, what's the type of sharing of information when you're doing research with something like that? Um, I definitely think that people um, will share data or combine like de-identified data sets when to write a paper together um, to publish. Like, I just worked on a little bit of analysis for a paper that was combining data from the DC cohort and the Hopkins cohort. So um, people infected with HIV in Baltimore. Um, And so I think that um, I would say that people, they're not just going to give their data to someone. um, But if, if someone has, you know, cohort data or, you know, in any kind of research, if there's a way that you can, combine your data set or work on a project together um, so that ultimately you can publish together. Um, I would say that people are generally pretty open to that or like, um, especially working at a university for students, especially like um, people are generally very happy to share data with students. If students have to do a a project or something like that. Um, I know the DC cohort, um, there are a bunch of investigators, like there are investigators at each uh, clinic that we get data from. Um, and so those physicians, if they want to um, write a paper with data from the cohort, um, obviously they're able to get those data. There's a process that you have to go through writing up a, a proposal and there's a whole executive committee for the cohort that reviews these proposals and, um, you know, decides um, if they should go forward or not. Um, but I think people are are generally willing to to share um, so that at least that you can, you know, work on a paper together because ultimately the the, the only benefit that data have is if you publish your findings. Um, and so, um, and you know, if you find something novel, people get really excited about it. So, um, I would say generally people are fairly willing to share, um, though I'm not the one in charge of any of that. I'm like a, a mid-level situation in, in research right now. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that is, I'm always curious to see how it goes. Sometimes people can be very provincial and territorial about uh, things that they come up with, but then maybe when the end game is better public health, maybe it's it's more sharing. You know, it's like, hey, if more people win, then it's it's as, as opposed to having you know the right. 
patch for a software code that makes yeah, eating like, different, know, you know, it's, yeah, it's like a totally different outcome, you know, for what that may be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe like pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a little bit different <laughs> for that, for sure. Yeah. So we're, we're saying like within the next three, four years, there will be Dr. Cooley uh, will be uh, freshly minted out of the PhD uh, program. What would be the first grant research grant proposal that you write, you know, in where, and you would be the lead researcher and, um, and, and you could have a team of people working underneath you. Um, what would that, what do you think that dream proposal uh, would be? Oh man. Um, I, so right after I finished my doctoral degree, uh, I don't think I'm going to have anyone working under me. Um, I'll probably have to do a postdoc or something like that, but, um, I am really interested in social determinants of health, especially in the Medicaid population. Um, and so I don't know if there would be some interplay between that and HIV um, or I just having switched jobs in August and having worked in emergency medicine for six years prior to this, I feel like I'm kind of having a, a, a mini crisis about um, what area of research I should be in, um, and so I don't I don't know exactly. And when I get asked this question at the start <laughs> of the semester in every new class, it's like, what are you interested in? Um, I, would, I would imagine though that you're right. Your your inclination to go to the social determinant of better geriatric outcomes and care. I mean, it's not as if the boomer generation is um, getting any smaller. I mean, like this is something that's, that's going to be, um, you know, absolutely expanding. So their out health outcomes and the determinants of that, that could be a really interesting pursuit. Yeah. Sure. So Medicaid is actually low income people. Oh, I'm sorry. Medi I meant Medicare. So. Everyone, Medicare yeah. is, is older people. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Medicare, I know very little about. I'm actually in a class this semester about Medicare payment structures, um, and it's just all a surprise to me. Um, I am more well-versed in Medicaid and more interested in, in Medicaid as opposed to Medicare. Oh, that too. That too. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So Paige, this has been so great. Um, and usually towards the end of the interview, I always like to ask a question, which is, what advice would you give to current wildcats about being successful? I would say um, to make sure that you remain um, open to, to new opportunities that, that might come up and um, not to go into your life um, thinking that you know exactly what you're going to do um, and that you have to stick to that path. Um, I obviously thought that my life was going to look a lot different than it does right now. Um, but I like what I do. Um, and I'm happy that I, you know, stumbled into the area that I'm in now. Um, and, and, you know, being open to changing my major in college and, you know, moving and, doing a master's degree and like now a PhD, um, that was never what I had planned. Um, and it turned out pretty good, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is great. Paige, thank you so much uh, for your time. And uh, maybe if I'm still doing this podcast in four years, I'll get you again and we can talk about uh, what you're doing as Dr. Cooley. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music Podcasts and search We Go Vox.